April 20th, 2014, lecture discussion number 152 on the Book of Romans. So those of you folks who are here for the first time today because it is first fruits, there's 151 lectures on this subject prior to today. Not specifically this uh, subject, but that lead up to it. And <coughs> excuse me. Obviously, because today is the feast day of first fruits, uh, we will be interrupting our current trajectory uh, through Romans chapter nine, and instead we will reflect on the significance of this feast day of first fruits and why God chose this one to be resurrected on. He has seven of them. He has Passover, as you know. You should be able to just yell these out at me, but don't do it here. Uh, unleavened bread. Just assume the person, and that's not the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. That's unleavened bread. Uh, just assume that the person next to you knows that, but they don't. They're faking it, just like all of us do here. Uh, then we have first fruits, which is today. It is the first weekly Sabbath uh, after the Passover. That's something that uh, is not commonly known. That the word that that, that says that Christ was. Uh, crucified after the Passover, or after the Sabbath, is sabbaton, and it means plural. So he was crucified uh, after the uh, Sabbaths, not just Sabbath. And the first weekly Sabbath, if you will, after uh, Passover, or unleavened bread, is first fruits, and that's today. So, and then we have the uh, feast day of weeks, and then trumpets, which is my personal favorite. Only the Internet audience understands that and laughs and Yom Kippur, or atonement. Those are his seven feast days. Did I get them all? Oh, uh, tabernacles. Sorry. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And they're grouped like this. One, two, three, five, six, seven. And weeks is in the middle. Sometimes called Pentecost, but that isn't an accurate description of it except for the numerical issue that's there. Anyway, of all of those seven days he, uh, that he has, those are the seven feast days of the Lord, he picks this one to resurrect himself. And as you know, he picked this one to do what? Three o'clock. He picked this one to die on. In fact, he controls his death to the point that he dies specifically at a time that he chooses. He has authority over his life and over his death. He can do whatever he wants with it. And he chooses three o'clock to take his life down. And of course, he said, I can take it down. I can pick it up. I can put it down. I do whatever I want as many times as I want. Because why? He's God. So why does God choose Passover to die? Unleavened bread is his burial. Eh? Weeks, he sends the Holy Spirit. Ten days before that, he ascends, and trumpets, Yom Kippur, or atonement, and tabernacles uh, have yet to be revealed. Though there's no shortage of opinion or speculation on what he's going to do on those days. Is he going to do something on those days? He did something on these days. All of them greatly significant. I would say that you can extrapolate out and be safe to conclude that something is going to happen on trumpets, something is going to happen on Yom Kippur, and something is going to happen on tabernacles. They have a relationship to an event. And again, you can buy hundreds of books. Do I have a book? No. Would it be as bad as everybody else's if I did? Yes. Uh, 
would I make a lot of money if I wrote one? Only if I marketed it to people who like to buy those kinds of silly books. Anyway, if you came today hoping for, exciting, excitedly anticipating a continuance of Romans 9, which is a triad, if you've been here, you'll know that uh, there's this triad in Romans 9, Jacob and Esau, Pharaoh and the potter and the clay. They are linked together and they form three pieces of a whole. And that's not going to be the case today, nor am I going to be discussing gravitational phenomenon. I know that that's most of you are here for that. Uh, or general relativity. I love general relativity. Is the speed of light constant from any and all frames of reference? That's a very important thing to discuss, that and gravity. Because, by the way, the Bible that we gave these young children today that we dedicated um, is a Henry Morris. It's a Bible that defends the creation account of Scripture. Because the creation account of Scripture is what? It's true. And it's powerful. And the more you know about what we would call modern science, the more obvious that it is true it becomes. Um, so that's why I like to, uh, to discuss these subjects such as uh, general relativity and gravitational forces and uh, what is gravitation, time dilation, which is the, the slowing or the um, distortion of time and observational bias, um, which is frame of reference, but is also the observer effect in physics. And, and those are my favorites, that and entropy or the laws of thermodynamics. But we're not going to do that today. And let the record show that not one single person is sad about that in the, uh, in the auditorium. There is no mourning for astrophysics. I, I can't talk enough about astrophysics, as you might know if you've been coming, because it's a philosophy, and it's important to know that. It's, it's philosophical. Most of the evidence of astrophysics uh, is evidence based on philosophical criteria, and that's to say that if they find something in the astrophysical sciences that is repugnant to them, is contrary to their philosophy, their mindset, or their bias, if you will, then they discard it. It'll be cast aside, regardless of its data, regardless of its position. It cannot, uh, it cannot withstand the philosophy. And uh, that's why that becomes important. Why does astrophysics become so important to the Christian? Because it is used to teach your children that there is no God. It's probably the singular weapon in society today. That's why we discuss it here. But I won't do that today. Next week, I, I'm going to go back to Romans 9, 12 through 21, more specifically the context of Genesis 25, 29 through 33, which is what? That is where Jacob and Esau have this discussion which is an unbelievable, very complex meeting between two extraordinary men. One of them is the, if you will, the, his progeny become the nation of Israel, that's Jacob, or if you will, Israel, and the other one, Esau, his progeny become the nation of Edom, the Edomites. And they have a meeting. I have a meeting between Israel and Edom, but I also have an, a meeting between two individuals, Jacob and Esau, Brothers, uh, obviously twins, 
Esau is fleeing for his life in Genesis 25, 29 through 33, because he has killed the husband of Semiramis. If I spell it right, I'll have to say, I'll have to look. Who is Semiramis? Do you know? You should know. I'll give you another name for her. Uh, Ashtoreth. Or if you will, it's, it's shortened to this. She is the queen of Easter. Or some would call her Ishtar. But that is the, how the Hebrews, uh, she is the wife of, some say also the mother of, Nimrod. No. Nimrod is called by the Israelites what? Do you know? Baal. That's right. Now, the Norse would call him what? Odin. Greeks, Zeus. Or the Romans. And then Nimrod, when he is murdered, Semiramis, or the queen of Easter, and it, by the way, it is absolutely pronounced that way. She declares his son, the, the Messiah of the world, that is Hamoth. Um, in Greek mythology, he is called Hercules, for example. So I have a meeting between Jacob and Esau that's occurring in Genesis 25 because Esau has killed Nimrod and this event where Semiramis elevates Tammuz the baby over all of Babylon and says this is the new Messiah of the world happens almost immediately after that. In the meantime, Esau is running from the uh, the guards, if you will, the the agents of Nimrod, and fleeing for his life. And he says so. That's what this discussion about the birthright and all of that is between the two of them. So the question that I raised last week that sort of fits today, I hope you understand that. Uh, by the way, they also call Nimrod this in Egypt. Ra. All the same person, all reflective back to Nimrod. Same thing, Isis. Isis is Semiramis. But I have this agreement because uh, Jewish history says that uh, Nimrod was killed by Esau. And that launches a bunch of events. And now I have Jacob and Esau discussing it. And Jacob has a plan. He wants to draw up a contract. Why? What's his motive? Is he trying to trick Esau out of something? And, and lots of people will say that he is, by the way. It's very common in secular circles that Jacob is evil, bad. He's doing something sneaky. And that, that, that aspersion, by the way, was used to persecute the Jews for centuries. Nowhere in the Bible, not in a single place in all of the Bible, is there a place, is, is there ever even a hint that God condemns Rebecca or Jacob for what they did. In fact, all you find of Rebecca and Jacob is honoring passages. You find no condemnation of either one of them. So if you have a view that somehow uh, 
Jacob has done something wrong when he is doing this. You can't defend it based on Scripture. I would suggest to you, you go the other direction and say, what is he doing that is so powerfully right? And does he and Esau, do they understand each other? How complex is that? But again, the, the whole element here is to recognize what the motive of Jacob is in order to solve this mystery. And the mystery becomes important today because we are worshiping uh, the resurrection of Christ on his feast day of Bikiram, of first fruits. There's no relationship between this day and that word right there. None. It's not a biblical word. It is not a godly word. It is not, has no value at all to the Christian faith. It is a fertility day, which is why we have fertility symbols associated with it, rabbits and chickens. Eggs and bunnies. But you know all of that. And the internet audience knows all of that. And yes, they're, they will write me things. I was going to read them, but I ran out of time. They're very funny. And we, uh, we really appreciate their contribution here. So, as an aside, what's going on is service here. I'll start erasing the board because I have to. What is going on is service. It says in Romans and in Malachi, um, or in Genesis, sorry, that the younger, or the older, I'm sorry again, I'm saying it backwards, the older will do what? Will serve. Okay, that's a very important uh, word there. The older will serve the younger. What does service mean? Is it a bad thing? In the Bible, when the Bible talks about servants and service, is it ever bad? Go find all the, all the passages you can where it is bad to be the servant. Okay? But Esau would serve Jacob. What does that mean? Again, is this Edom serving Israel? Or is this an individual Esau serving an individual Jacob? Or if you wish, is this about individual salvation? Or is this about Paul grieving for his nation of Israel, which is how Romans 9.1 begins? So, the context of that, and starting with that question, solves all the interpretive challenges, as does the uh, books of Malachi and Obadiah. So that, however, is not our subject today either. So far, we haven't got to the subject. This is first fruits, the third of the seven, the day that God resurrects himself. You have to know that. Jesus Christ is God, and he says as plain as he can say it in John 2, 19 through 20, I will raise myself up. We would expect that. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. It also says in the Bible in Acts that the Father will raise up the Son, and the Holy Spirit is also said to raise and be involved and be the raiser of Christ. I would expect that. There are three that are one. They're a triunity. But this is the day that God resurrects himself. Christ resurrects himself. Both are appropriate. And today is also the anniversary of the sign of Jonah, Matthew 12, 39 through 40. And so we're going to spend some time talking about this extraordinary day because he resurrected himself on this day. And as you know, as I gave away in the baby dedications, I gave away two things, didn't I? I gave away a what? An Old Testament... And I gave away a young 
Testament. How interesting a way of phrasing, huh? An older and a younger. You'll find that theme a lot in Scripture. And we have two Testaments in one book. The First Testament and the Second Testament. What are they? What's the word testament mean? A testament is a what? It's a contract. It's contractual language, and it applies to a contractual document. The, your Bible, the Bible we gave to those children, is a contextual uh, uh, book. A contract that is activated when? When does the contract become activated? Because it's not activated until a certain event happens. What event is that? That's right. It's, it is activated because it is a will and testament. And it is activated upon the death of the author, the testator. So a contract activated upon the death of the testator, the person who has written his will and testament. Now, I don't say last will and testament. What do I say instead? Only will and testament. There is a last will and testament because there is maybe a tertiary or a secondary or a first. I am changing my will on a daily basis based on which children are the most obedient. Which one are in the service the most? Oh, there's Anna. Black mark there. And so, testaments change. But this is the only will and testament of God. I bring this up again because, as always is the case, uh, the secular activists hate today. They hate this day, just as they hate Passover, unleavened bread. They hate all of the feast days, but they really hate Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits because this is the day he he dies. He extinguishes his life like you would blow out a candle as quickly as he could. He has power over death, but certainly over his own death. And he uh, is buried, entombed, or wrapped, if you will, right? He is wrapped. We'll get to that in a minute. This is uh, unleavened bread, with which that happens. Three days, three nights, sign of Jonah. And he resurrects himself on first fruit. So they hate all of that, and they don't want it to even be discussed. Uh, this is the... Uh, the day that the truth that God came of his, uh, to his created, uh, that's us on this earth in an act of mercy, a sacrificial love, if you wish to think of it that way, of his own free will. There's a shock. God has free will. He can do what he wants. And he did all of that in order to save whomsoever will come to him. This day is despised by the humanists, and they, they well up with hate. And they do what? They rage. And they express their rage by making signs and placing ads in full-page ads in as many newspapers as they can afford. And every year, that's the plan. And 2014 is not an exception. It's happened again this year. And usually the signs say something, uh, and the full-page ads say something like this. Jesus Christ is a myth. He did not exist. He did not live. Therefore, he did not what? Die for your sins. He's a myth. And they say it. There is no resurrection. There's no life after death. When you die, there is only nothingness. That's their ads. They walk the streets with their signs. 
I've always found uh, these kinds of signs and such fascinating. I want to know again, what's the motive? I think it's twofold. I think the motive is to bring as much uh, despair to as many people as possible and then attract new members and uh, who will contribute monies and salaries to their organization, not unlike any other organization, be it political or, hey, religious or charitable, etc. The salaries of the uh, administration is foremost on the minds of these kinds of organizations, pretty much all organizations. Uh, money corrupts everything nowadays. Follow the money, right? But can there be a more so hopeless, horrible, miserable message than that of the evolutionary atheist? And I'll answer that for you. No. You can't get any more horrible than that message. There can't be and there isn't one that's worse than that. It is pure, absolute, total sorrow and anguish and desolation. It's fatalism. It's devoid of any good. There's not a piece of good in evolutionary philosophy. Not a piece of good in any atheistic philosophy. There's not. But they sure hate this day. Because this day is the opposite day of fatalism. You have fatalism philosophy on one side, you have Christian philosophy on the other. They are polar, complete opposites. I shouldn't say philosophy. I should say theology or doctrinal truth on the side of the Christian. And I, by the way, don't think the fact that it is fatalism and devoid of any good and hopeless and desolation, I don't think that's happenstance. In fact, I'm actually kind of pleased with their, their honesty. I wish our political class could do the same thing. Vote for me. I hate the country. I mean, that would be very helpful. We would know, okay, they won't say that, will they? They'll just do what they can to do as much damage as possible. But at least the fatalists, the, the evolutionary atheists say, give us money. There is no hope. You're doomed to nothingness. At least there's a sense of honesty there. And please donate large amounts of money so that we can pay ourselves your salaries. That's usually on their sign somewhere in the small print. And we can spread our proclamations that life is useless, it is worthless, it is meaningless, and cash only. And my question all the time when I see all of that is, who's joining this? You've got to be kidding. But uh, they obviously are making money. They have, they have capital. They have receipts. All you have to do to see how it's possible is watch uh, made-for-TV sales, as seen on TV. We'll buy anything. But one thing is overwhelmingly clear. The members of these atheist organizations have no idea that the Bible is a, la- is a will and testament, an only will and testament of God himself, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, and it is now in effect. They don't know that. They don't know why it is given in the form it is given or how it is a legal document and uh, what it is testifying of. And again, it went into effect on Passover at 3 p.m. 2,000 years and more or so ago. And it's a contract. And as a contract, it is filled with promises that must be kept. I have refreshments that I stole and put in my pocket. Now that my wife is gone, I can pull them out. You won't tell, I know. But this is a contract that Christ said that he would fulfill. 
and has fulfilled and will fulfill. That's from our perspective, which is an inside of time perspective, but it is promise upon promise upon promise upon promise upon promise. Hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of promises in his contract. That's very important to know that that's, there's that many. Galatians 1.4, our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Remember the sign. The sign says essentially two things. Okay? Jesus is a myth. He did not die for sin. And they personalize it for your sin. All there is is meaningless and nothingness. His contract that he puts into effect when he takes his life, if you will, snuffs out of his life, extinguishes his life, when he lays his life down. No one has the power to take his life but him, John 10. He puts this contract into effect. It is now operational. And Paul is telling us, In Galatians, our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he may deliver us, which is save us, from this evil age. So, Paul in Galatians says immediately that Christ did this. He did die and that he's not a myth. So, we have one verse right off the bat. But people say, well, I want to hear it directly from Christ because uh, I don't accept Paul. The Holy Spirit through Paul tells us that the Lord, the creator of all things, John 1, 3, gave himself for our sins. That's not acceptable to so many people. So somewhere we're going to find the promise that he will do this. It has to be in there, doesn't it? Because why? It is a contract. He will die for our sins. In the will and testament, there has to be a reference to it. And Jesus repeatedly foretells of his execution. He says often that he will undergo an execution. Again, always couple those verses with John 10, 17, and 18, where he also says, no one can take my life. I'm God. So understand what he's saying when he says that he will be executed. It must be done so with his consent. Every aspect of it. So the death of Christ is everywhere in his will and testament. It's everywhere in the old and everywhere in the new. Primarily Leviticus in the old, it illustrates the substitution and sacrificial nature of his death. They killed millions and millions of animals and their blood ran down troughs so that we would understand the sacrificial system that is in Scripture, that is a picture of Christ. And that I have a covering of sin with the blood of the sacrifice. And Matthew 20, 28, Christ says this. He says he gives his life as a ransom. What's that mean? You should watch more TV. Okay, you shouldn't. If I said, okay, everybody in the front row, the highest and most holy people here, Bonnie and Bill, we're going to ransom them. We're going to provide them as ransom. For what? If I have to pay a ransom, what's, what's occurred? Hmm? Abduction. Yes. Somebody is what? Being held against what? Being imprisoned. I have an imprisoned, kidnapped, if you will, abducted person somewhere. Christ says that he gives his life as a ransom. In other words, he's exchanging himself. He's substituting himself. Who's he doing it for? Who's been kidnapped? Who's being held? Who's in prison? 
You can answer aloud here, but you can't raise your hand. That's the rules. And if you say something too loud, what will happen? That's right. Your neighbors will argue with you. This is not very polite here either. But ransom implies that there is a hostage and that Christ says, I am the price to release the hostage. You see this really in Samson typology when he pulls the gates and climbs up the hill and throws these massive gates into a valley, gates that weighed thousands of pounds. It was a supernatural event. But uh, Matthew 26 through 27, 28, Christ says his blood is for the forgiveness of sin. It's in the contract. He wrote a contract. It is in effect when he uh, gives his life. And, and it's one of the process, promises that has to be kept. You see, resurrection, if I put it in the contract, then it's got to happen. If he says that it will happen, and the point of it is this, is your salvation, then in order for us to have salvation, he must be resurrected. And the Bible will tell you, the resurrection is critical. The resurrection of Christ. He resurrects himself. That's different than your resurrection or my resurrection. We can't resurrect ourselves. He must resurrect himself, as he said, in order for us to be saved. And by the way, how many promises are there again? Thousands and thousands of promises in the contract. How many have to be kept? All of them. What's it going to take to keep them all? First, I have to have somebody who has power over death who will, who will ransom himself, whose blood is sufficient. I have, he has enough blood that he could cover all the sins of the saved. Notice how I said that. The sins of the many. No universalism. But if the promises are such that they are in Scripture, who is able to execute? Who is the executor? Who can perform all of those promises? Because they have to all be kept. It's fascinating to me uh, that uh, it's obvious immediately that the executor and the author have to be the same person. They both have to be God himself. If not... There's no way this contract would be executed properly and completely and absolutely. And by the way, do the people who write the sign, that they know that Jesus claims to be God? Do they know? If you talk to atheists, do they understand that? People of these societies that collect the monies to pay the salaries, do they know what they're saying and who they're saying it against? They absolutely do. They have a better deity of Christ position than most Christians do. They know exactly what the Bible is saying. I've never met one yet that doesn't. They come up to me and they spit and they say, usually uh, I back up as soon as I see them coming, cover myself in plastic. But they immediately tell me, you think Jesus is God, you fool. And I'm, again, I'm actually kind of thankful for that and I carry a washcloth. point is, is they really do get it. I'm surprised at how few in the church, unfortunately, understand the deity of Christ. But he is the executor and the author. Well, who are the beneficiaries? What are beneficiaries of a will called, by the way? What are you called legally? If if, uh, you're a beneficiary of a will and you're related, you're uh, in sonship or daughtership, if you will. Sonship covers both. What are you? You're an inheritor. What does the Bible call you? It calls you an inheritor. 
Those who will inherit the kingdom. Those who will inherit eternal life. See, what is the inheritance? And Christ tells you, Matthew 5, 5. For they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit eternal life, Matthew 19, 29. You will inherit the kingdom prepared for you. It's in the will. He made sure that you knew that you were, had an inheritance and that it would be affected upon his what? His death. But he has to be what in order to execute it? Resurrect it. It's not a coincidence. It's a very logical, brilliantly thought through plan. God is so lucky. He always seems to get it just perfect. It's helpful to be omniscient. Because the author wills it so, it will be the ex- he is the executor and the will will be executed perfectly because the author sacrifices himself. And that as an aside brings in some important attributes of God. Uh, usually I make a list. I'll start with one or two really quickly and then I'll add to it as we go. And God wants to make sure that you know that he has a will, and that he has a mind. Very important. Think of your sign again. Jesus is not God, and you, your sins are not, he did not die for your sins. What are they really saying to you? They're not saying to you that you're stupid, though they would like to say that. They are saying... Something very much different than that. God has a will. He has a mind. He has other things. He has humility. Humility is a driving characteristic uh, of God, as you should understand. He gives. He sacrifices. He provides himself. In Genesis 15, Abraham says, uh, what is the sacrifice? And Christ says back to him, take me. I am the sacrifice. His humility is is omnipresent in Scripture, as is his mind. He shows us his mind often, his logic, his consciousness. A great example was 1 Samuel 2.35. And all of that is impossible, just that, the mind and the will, is impossible for evolutionary atheists to explain or even conceive in their philosophy. See, they say what? They say, your mind is emergent from your physical mass inside your brain. Your brain is a physical mass. Your mind uh, has no physicality to it all. It's non-physical. But they say somehow a physical property, the mass of your brain, has emerged out your mind, and then your mind immediately took control of your physical brain. So somehow I have a supernatural or a non-physical component, a mind, and it seizes control of a physical component that it emerges from. That's not logical. But they will say there is no such thing as any will for anyone, and there is no God, and there is no mind. That's what they say. There is no logic. There is no consciousness. All of that is impossible for evolutionary philosophy, and, and, and it's impossible for them to explain it. Evolutionary theory cannot explain the fact that you have a mind or that you have any logic to you at all. A teenage boy is excluded. What I'm saying is that evolution has no means to account for the attributes of God. Goodness. 
If this were, if evolution were true, there would be no goodness at all, ever. Goodness is not an attribute that is advantageous to an evolutionary philosophy. They'll try. Uh, they'll hope, they'll say, well, goodness does uh, make their, the society better somehow, even though we don't even agree there's such a thing. But how do you explain sacrificial goodness? There's quite a story here recently where a man saved his autistic son. He was in his 60s. His son had fallen into a septic uh, tank of sorts, and he was drowning inside of it, and he could not get himself out. And the father in his 60s dove into the tank and lifted the son up long enough for him to breathe and live. Uh, Down syndrome is what he had. Sorry. But, of course, the father perished. How does evolution explain a man sacrificing himself for his Down syndrome child, son? They can't, they won't, they never do. Sacrificial goodness cannot be explained. The the foundation of God in Scripture on this day, what is Passover? Sacrificial goodness. What is resurrection? It is the executing of the will, the promises kept, among other things. One who dies to save another is outside of atheism's capability. No greater love, John fifteen thirteen, right? No greater love, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Obviously, Christ, God in the flesh, he's God in the flesh, always know that. He's referring to himself, so there's that very high level there. But he's also simultaneously raising the issue, being omniscient. He would know that someday somebody would come along and say, there is no goodness, there is no hope, there's only meaninglessness and no and randomness and chaos. And he will say to them, you explain sacrificial goodness, selflessness. Unexplainable, selfless acts of goodness. What's the origin of goodness? What is the origin of selfless acts? Where does goodness come from? Evolutionary philosophy has nothing in it that explains it. Nothing. And, and whenever I talk to an evolutionist, uh, a monist, monistic philosopher, we always go right here. It's so quick. Uh, he comes to me and I say, mind brain. And he says, emergentism. And our property dualism, and I go back, substance dualism, sacrificial goodness. And he goes back, particle-based. And I go back, uh, irreducible complexity, fine-tuning. And we walk away. That's how fast it can be done now. They won't let me get into astrophysics just like you. I try to go time dilation, but they run. Where does goodness come from? Better question. It has to come from a person. Who is the source of goodness? Evolutionary philosophy has nothing. And that's why they print flyers and they make signs. Jesus is a myth. Jesus did not die for your sins on Passover. And therefore, he did not resurrect on first fruits. See, and that is exactly the same as saying what? There is no God. There is no difference between saying Jesus is a myth and that there is no God. And also, if Jesus is a myth, 
and there is no God, then there's no source of what? Because goodness has to come from a person. There is no goodness. And if you think that you have any goodness or that you witness any goodness, you are fooling yourself. That's an illusion. There is no will. There is no ability to think for yourself. There is no mind. There's no consciousness. There's no self-awareness. All of that is an illusion. You are in a, uh, a delusional, oblivious state. That's what they will tell you. And, and the natural extension of believing, by the way, that none of that exists is, is that uh, there is nothing logical. There is only randomness and chaos and purposelessness, which is exactly what evolutionary philosophy says. And it is uh, fatalistic monism. So, obviously, a scientist that d- devotes himself to studying the laws of physics and I know quite a few. They write me now. It's really wonderful. First thing they tell me is, thank you for bringing these, these uh, uh, different subjects into the church realm. And you clearly are not a scientist. It's usually one after the other or they're tied together. But uh, I still appreciate them. They're all hilariously uh, funny people. And they have to be to be studying physics, right? You need a sense of humor. You're going to do that. But uh, a scientist who devotes himself to studying the laws of physics, but is an evolutionary monist. Again, let me help you if you've not been here before. A monist is somebody that says that all we are is a physical being. We have no uh, spiritual quality, no spiritual component. So you are purely physical, monistic. You are one thing only, and that is physical. And upon the death of the body, meaninglessness, nothingness. That is monism. The dualist, the Christian says, no, you're a two-component being. You have a physical body that is controlled by a spiritual component. And immediately they won't want you to say that you have a spiritual component because what will you ask them? How do you evolve a spiritual component and what is a spiritual component made of? Is it a particle-based entity? It exists. Is it an entity that is particle-based? No, it's not reducible to particles. So where do I get a spiritual component? How does it become interfaced, if you will, interconnected with your mind, your body? When does that happen? That's a big debate in the church. There's two positions. Transducianism, I think, is a position that prevails. You can look it up in your own spare time. But a scientist that devotes himself to the study of the laws of physics, or astrophysics, or the study of any laws, all the laws, but he has an evolutionary monistic philosophy. He believes that there is nothing. There's no will. There's no mind. There's no logic. All there is is purposelessness. It's all there is. There is no design. There's no evidence of a design. Why is he studying laws then? What makes him study laws? Laws are what? Do we have laws? We have lots of laws. Laws are ubiquitous. We have universal laws that are the same all over the universe. How do they exist if there's no purpose? How can I study something that is complete random chaos with no meaning to it? How do, why do I spend time discovering laws and applying laws and applying all those? That is what an evolutionary monist, a physicist must do. And the hypocrisy of it is stunning. Astonishing. How do you believe in no design and then, and then study purpose? It's inexplicable, but it's common. We call them what? That's right, college professors. 
academic elite. God has attributes. Mind and will. When I say mind and will, I'm also saying consciousness, self-awareness. I know, I've got to spell consciousness correctly because I always miss out here. Consciousness cannot be explained by monism or by physicality, self-awareness. I have self-awareness. That's how I know you have self-awareness. You know who you are. I know who I am. Do not confuse consciousness with cognition, the ability to perform skills, the ability to hit a baseball. They're different. My cognitive capabilities are disintegrating right before your eyes, and they have disintegrated. You watched them during this lecture. But my self-awareness... Is still exactly what it is. My understanding of that, that I am me. And it's in, inferred in consciousness and will is logic. And of course, all of that is in, is in existence. So, attributes of God, mind, consciousness, logic, existence. I'll add some more for you. Creativity. Humility. Goodness. Those two are very close together. But goodness, uh, love, mercy, justice. I cannot leave out justice because if he does not have justice, then he does not have what? He does not have holiness. If he is not the judge, okay, then he is not good. Justice, judgment. People that say there is no judgment... Well, then you are saying that God is not good. There has to be justice in order to have goodness. And not one of those that I just rattled off, not one of the attributes of God is explained or can be explained by evolutionary processes, nor can yours. Your existence, your consciousness, your creativity, any goodness, your logic, none of that can be explained by evolutionary philosophy. It's obvious that God has marinated his creation in his attributes and us, our humanity, being foremost an example. And I submit that God is pleased, that he's joyful when goodness is chosen or displayed, when selfishness is em- selflessness, I'm sorry, is embraced, uh, when selfishness is denied and when evil and wickedness is rejected. It is not a coincidence that our world is promoting the same thing over and over again and adores and wants us to also adore and worship the very selfish, the most selfish people in our society are adored and promoted. The proud, the rebellious, the louder you are, the more money you make. That is the opposite of God. I heard a wonderful statement. Get off of Facebook and learn to do something. Could not say it better. There is nothing that is worse than self-promotion. God is not a clanging bell. He calls us to be quiet, to be humble, to be obedient, and to be selfless, just like Him. That's why He did this. That's why He does this. That's why He's going to do these. Very quickly, and I know that's your favorite part of the sermon. At the Passover meal, 
the athikomen. It's a Greek word. It's the only Greek word in the Hebrew Passover. What happens is the children must search out and find the athikomen. The athikomen means he came. He came to enact the contract and to execute the contract. The athikomen is a bread, an unleavened bread, and the children of the Hebrews family that are celebrating the Passover, they've got to search and find the Afikoman because it's hidden from them. And it means he came. It's an annual reminder to the Jews that, see, the Afikoman replaces the Passover lamb. After the temple was destroyed by the Romans, 70 A.D., there was no sacrifice, there's no Passover lamb, so they replaced it with this Afikoman. You can see the word Koman or Kom. He comes. He came. So it's an annual reminder that the Jews that he came as a Passover lamb. It's, they always ask this question at Passover. Why three breads or three matzahs? And one is broken. One of the breads is broken. And it is wrapped. And it is hidden. And the children have to run out and find it. And it represents the lamb. And everyone it replaces the lamb. And everyone must eat it. And it is hidden and they find it and then it is brought to the table at the same time that they drink the third cup. And they also believe Jewish tradition that if you throw a piece of the afikoman, if you're a sailor or if you're on a boat in in a raging sea, you can throw the afikoman into the water and it will calm the water. Tradition is thousands of years old. But I want you to notice the hiding of the afikoman because that's what God is doing, isn't he? He's asking us to search for him like children would search. By the way, the children always find the Afikom, and it's the adults adults that can't find it. You must come to me as a child comes, right? How does a child come? Does a child come selfish? Does a child come proud? Does a child come beating on a drum, blaring his horn, telling you how good he is? No, a child comes with great humility, with not a thought to reject him. God hides himself, doesn't he? Hid himself in infancy. But one of the Simeons of the Simeon prophecy, right? I have Simeon Peter. I have Simeon the Cyrenian. I have the Simeon the prophet. I have Simeon who's imprisoned by uh, Joseph. I have all the Simeons. The Simeon prophecy, the Simon prophecies, if you will. He's one of them. He knows immediately that that infant is who? He knows that's God. He figured it out. But God hides himself inside of Israel for 30 years. No one, not even his own family knew he was God. They couldn't find him. His disciples couldn't even find him. He told them over and over again. did all these incredible things. He put new limbs on people, new arms and new legs, new eyes. Raised them from the dead. They didn't know he was God. I'm describing modern church, too, by the way. But Christ has left now for 2,000 years. He's at a distance. He's out of sight. This is God's way. Why? Why? Why is he doing it? Because of this. Understand the humility of God. He's long-suffering. He does not defend himself, does he? In fact, we get mad at him for not defending himself. Why doesn't he defend himself? He doesn't. People say things about him that are... Blasphemous and 
horrible. He does not respond. Why not? You're learning about the person that he is. And what he does instead is he puts his contract on the table. He puts his will and his testament on the table, and he's waited now 2,000 years. While millions and millions and millions of people have read his thousands and thousands and thousands of promises, and each time someone believes in the name of Christ, what happens in heaven? There's great rejoicing. Obviously, God is not anxious to end this, is he? He's left that will and testament for any and all who would come and be inheritors, beneficiaries. All you have to do is come. All you have to do is read it, believe it, believe in the name of Christ, accept his gift of life, take the blood. And then what happens? Rejoicing. He's not stopping it. Why didn't he stop it 2,000 years ago? He could have gone, you know, let him have maybe 10 years, come back. I say this all the time. I am personally thankful that he just put it on the table and waited for me. I have consciousness. I have existence. I have life. That's a good thing, I think. The day that the rejoicing ends is a day of great sorrow, and God wills that none perish. Second Peter 3, 9. He leaves his will and testament, all of which testifies of Christ. John 5, 39. We're supposed to search and find him. John 5, 39. In his contract. That's what we're supposed to do. Search the scriptures, they testify of me. That's not a suggestion. That is a commandment from the Lord God Almighty. As the musicians come forward, searching for him is the only way that is true and consistent with his attributes. When you figure out this humility and this goodness, then you figure out how to search for him and why. Who are you looking for? Somebody in a loud nylon suit with a, a light show and a band? They, if you're looking for him, and by the way, does he grow a pretty big church? Yes, he does. If you're looking for him to be God, you see, all the types of the Antichrist are what in Scripture? Every one of them. Saul, Absalom, Judas. All of them are what? Beautiful. All the pictures you see of Christ in every place is, well, what are they? They're beautiful. You think you got that right? You can get it right. Don't look for somebody beautiful who's loud, who's triumphantly pointing to himself and jumping up and down, who comes with neon signs and smoke, fireworks. It's not God. You didn't find God. Find God. Search the scriptures. Find out what he's really like, who he really is, why he does what he does, why he did what he did. Why of all the days in the Bible he picks first fruits, his third one. Why does he pick that third one to resurrect himself? Could have picked any of them. Could have picked the second. Could have picked this one. But no, his sign of Jonah comes on the third one. Why first fruits? What is first fruits? 
What are we supposed to do? Wave sheaves. What's that about? Well, go look it up. It's in your contract. Let's rise and be the